Hey, it's Dan. We've got a special episode for you this week produced by Stat News. It's their relatively new podcast, Color Code, hosted by Nick St. Fleur. Color Code talks with physicians, patients, historians, and others about the history of racism in healthcare and how it impacts people of color and underserved communities. We're excited to bring you this episode and hope you enjoy it. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Go right ahead. All right, Rebecca, so I'm going to walk you through the case. So you're going to have a 20-minute encounter with a standardized patient where you and an actor pretending to be a student are going to enter the room. And you both are going to do a preoperative blood draw ahead of a surgery that the patient's going to have in a few weeks. So during that session... Gerald Catlett is a second-year MD-PhD student at Mount Sinai in New York. He's taking part in a fellowship designed to help dismantle racism in medical schools. As part of the fellowship, Gerald is creating an interactive workshop for students. So during that session, your patient is going to make discriminatory comments toward the student actor. And your goal is to use the framework that we learn in class to de-escalate that tension and complete the blood draw. So what are some things you might say to the patient if, say, they aren't comfortable with your colleague doing that blood draw? I trust the student's judgment. We both received the same training on how to do this procedure in our coursework, so there's no need to worry that they're any less skilled than another student who would otherwise be doing this. Gerald and his classmate Rebecca role-played one potential scenario for the Color Code team. The exercises in this workshop will help them practice handling situations in which they may see or experience discrimination in the hospital. And this is something that, like Rebecca said, we aren't really trained to actually deal with in a mistreatment sense. We might hear it, we might experience it, but because of our position in the medical hierarchy where we are just students... We have to defer to residents who defer to attendings who the attendings were never trained on this type of thing. So they don't know how to actually support their staff of color when something like this actually happens. So if we can train students, those students will become the residents and then the attendings who do know how to properly make sure that when someone experiences that type of racial trauma, that discrimination, they aren't the ones who have to advocate for themselves. You have an entire community of people who know what needs to be done, how to support that staff member, that healthcare worker, and successfully kind of make sure that the patient knows that that behavior is not appropriate, while also making sure that the staff member themselves is taken care of. Gerald is trying to immerse participants in scenarios that are drawn from real-life experiences that doctors of color have shared with him. Okay, great. And what's something you might say if the patient's being really aggressive with their racist comments and won't let either of you continue the exam? I might say, I'm not comfortable continuing this interview when you use that language towards my colleague and I. We're going to step out and our attending will take over from here. This process directly impedes on their learning experience. And so it's something where you can recuse yourself and say, my attending will take over from here. And so that's something that we in our framework have devised as things that are appropriate to say. There are 120 to 140 medical students per class. People are going to come up with a lot of different creative ways that we'll learn from as we're beta testing the case, and that's a part of my project too. Because sometimes when, you face, when you're face with something like this, you might know how you want to respond, but you don't necessarily have the words. 
immediately at your Ooh. disposal. So I think this was great. All right. So, so that's what kind of what we would talk about. This is Color Code, a podcast from STAT. I'm Nicholas St. Fleur, a science and health reporter here. In over eight episodes, I'm taking a look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind our country's stark racial health inequities. This is episode three, where we're taking a look at the fight to integrate anti-racism into medical education across the country. Students are at the bottom of the medical hierarchy, but when it comes to social justice work, they're often the first ones to spark change. Gerald and others like him want to make their institutions safer and more welcoming for future generations. Though Gerald says that his institution is very diverse, there are instances where he and his black classmates have faced microaggressions that have left them shaking their heads. And so it's something where I do feel like there's this thriving community of physicians, nurses, students from multiple years who we all talk about these things. We all kind of compare notes and say, you know, what did we just experience? Did this just happen? Um, did we have a class where someone said that the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was a positive thing? That did happen. I was curious. I've never heard of anyone say Tuskegee could have been positive. What what was the argument they were trying to make? And you know, you don't have to name names or anything. But I'm just I'm just legitimately curious. We we were talking about syphilis, the 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 pathophysiology of how syphilis affects the body, the different stages of it. And toward the end of it, there was a question about the Tuskegee experiment. The guy asked, "Does anyone want to dive into this? Like, can someone briefly summarize what it was?" I, someone who studied this type of thing in college multiple times. I was like, sure, I can give a minute diatribe about how awful this was. And the guy was like, yeah, sure. You know, it also had its benefits too because it was doing some sort of targeted trial toward a vulnerable population that experienced this disease disproportionately. Not, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of exactly what this was where making sharecroppers were, they had syphilis and were told that they were being treated for it but weren't, and followed for decades as the disease progressed. And so that isn't treatment. It wasn't a trial. And so we brought that to the administration. They addressed it right away. We had an entire separate lecture made about this thing um, to dive into it more in depth that all students had to go to. Gerald's work is just one aspect of a larger push towards anti-racism at Mount Sinai and other medical schools across the country. Jennifer Diaz is another student at Mount Sinai spearheading these efforts. Are you are you by the hospital right now in terms of living? Like I hear a siren. Is that like is that is that what yes. you're always hearing? Is it are are you always always have ambulances around? Tell me. Yes, sadly. Um, so I'm sorry if that ruins any no. of the recording. No, not at all. Not at all. So you're, you're, you live by She's the hospital. She's taking a break from classes after her second year to establish the Anti-Racist Transformation in Medical Education Program, also called ART. The national effort provides a framework 
for how to incorporate anti-racist values through every stage of medical education. This year, Art ushered in its first class of schools, which included 11 medical schools from North Carolina to Arizona. Like, what do you break down? What is it exactly you and your colleagues are doing at Art and why? Many institutions have said, we need to be anti-racist and here's what we need to change. But people don't like when change happens to them, right? You don't get buy-in if you tell people, hey, this is what you got to do tomorrow. Because they're like, why? And why does this affect me? And so it, it's taking some of the like social science principles of how do you prepare people within an institution to change because institutions don't change, people do. And applying that to medical education and making it bias-free or racism-free. And is that through curriculum? Is that through, you know, trainings? Like, what is it you're physically doing to, to incorporate that change? So at the end of both, I would say we're not going to train our way out of racism. Um, so we can't just say, I went to this training, check, I'm anti-racist. Um, it's the idea that we can make a plan in terms of what we're changing, but you have to have the agility to A, expect that there's going to be unexpected consequences to your changes. And then there's plans to course correct and also engage with the community in a way that they're also involved in what is changing and, and how it's happening. Jennifer sees art as an early step for institutions to transform their whole culture, including their practices and their policies. At times during the year, representatives from these schools get together to debrief on their progress. I would say the first session that we had, it felt like we were at church, not going to lie. Like we were getting amens and, you know, a lot of people just, it's just like the synergy, right? Of so many people across the country really coming together to say like, not only could we, are, are we have the ability to impact what's happening at our schools, but then all of a sudden we are in, we're impacting so many other pockets. Some schools are able to say, hey, well, this is happening at this other school. Uh, so are we going to hop on, hop on this change train too, or are we going to be left behind? It's pretty nice to hear when anti-racism work can be so communal and healing. But there are also significant barriers to doing this work. I would say the resistance is always present. Um, and that and fear, I mean, is quite frankly, one of the biggest aspects of white supremacy culture, right, is to make you scared of doing what you want and being yourself and telling your truth. For anyone doing this work, there's still a constant threat of targeted backlash. It's funny, while I was, you know, preparing for, for this interview and just preparing for my week, um, over the weekend, I was just watching TV and who pops up but you? <laughs> you were on a commercial. And I was just like, hey, I'm speaking to her in a couple of days. <laughs> I know the commercials have been getting some reactions, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. Michelle Morse is a physician and the chief medical officer of New York City's health department. And she currently stars in some local COVID safety commercials. But she used to work in Boston as a hospitalist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Last spring, she and a colleague published a paper for the Boston Review called 
an anti-racist agenda for medicine. They wrote about a study that looked at how providers at their hospital were caring for patients with heart failure. They found that white patients with heart failure were more likely to get specialized cardiology care, while black and brown folk, they were more likely to get care on non-specialized general medicine floors. The authors called for the hospital to rectify the unequal treatment of patients of color. Eventually, conservative outlets caught wind of the paper. Meanwhile, critical race theory now coming for your health care. Instructors at Harvard Medical School calling to use race as a determining factor when treating patients for heart failure. Breaking tonight, a top Boston hospital is considering offering race-based preferential care in an attempt to... On a Saturday this past January, about two dozen members of a neo-Nazi group marched outside Brigham and Women's Hospital. In the months since, the Worcester-based group of neo-Nazis has been protesting Morse and Wispelway, accusing the doctors of pushing a, quote, blatant anti-white genocidal policy. But after the group's latest demonstration, hundreds of doctors from around the country have shown their support for the anti-racist efforts, signing onto a letter. So I was not in Boston when this march happened. Um, However, I heard about it through friends and um, a couple of days afterwards actually saw a tweet that showed a picture of a flyer that had my name and face um, and my colleague, uh, Dr. Brom Wispelway's name and face as well. And so I think that's the point that it became particularly um, real, let's say. Um, and it was a really profound experience to, to see my face on this flyer. It felt quite surreal. Across um, the top of the flyer, in big, bold, white letters, it says, no anti-white policies in hospitals. And then below the faces of Dr. Morris and Dr. Wispelway, the text basically reads that what these doctors are doing is injecting critical race theory into these hospital policies. And it's just basically spewing some more neo-Nazi propaganda. And then at the end, it, in big, bold letters, it says, we will not tolerate the genocide of the people who founded this city. It's just super intimidating and, 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 and scary. And for Dr. Morse, when she, when she learned of the rally, I mean, she knew exactly where the white supremacists were marching, where they were spewing this hatred. I myself walked into Brigham and Women's Hospital through the entrance where the protests happened, you know, about a million times between, you know, 2008 and and uh, and when I transitioned here to New York City. So um, it's a it's a very familiar space um, to me. The residency program at Brigham had made admirable strides to become more diverse, Dr. Morse was telling us. But an institution can only do so much to fashion itself as anti-racist. It can't bar racism from the outside world. And so I also thought, oh my goodness, we have, you know, the largest number of people of color in the intern class in the internal medicine residency and the year that they start, there are neo-Nazi groups marching, you know, on the lawn of the hospital. So that was profoundly concerning, of course. To Michelle, the march was alarming, but it also matched what she saw in other parts of the U.S. 
what the response to the neo-Nazis is um, clearly and and what the public needs to hear and what providers need to hear is um, that the current reality of our country is white supremacy. And that's the problem. Um, And it's not about the solutions to health equity. It's really about the fact that the current state is profoundly unjust and unfair to people of color um, and has been since the history of the founding of this nation. So um, so although it was jarring and confusing, quite frankly, um, and more than anything, alarming, um, you know, in my opinion, what we need to be talking about is um, describing all of the data, experiences, and evidence that we have showing that the current state of this country, when it comes to health and social um, well-being, it's, is white supremacy. And that's what has to change. But what happens when the enemy is within? We'll return to Color Code after a quick break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back. We've turned over the feed this week to our friends at Stat News, featuring an episode from their newest podcast, Color Code. Here again is host Nick St. Fleur exploring how doctors of color are coping with racism in medicine. But racism, as we know, isn't always as obvious as mobs of white supremacists shouting at rallies. Backlash to anti-racist work can also come from inside a medical institution. And in some ways, that's harder to fight. This is something Dr. Aisha Khoury knows well. So I'm kind of just going to let you start where, where, wherever you would like to kind of start when, uh, as it pertains to, to, to you know, um, well, your instance and, and kind of what, what happened here. If you want to kind of set the scene for us. Um, sure. Uh, so I was asked as uh, an instructor. Uh, sorry. I get triggered by it, so just if you could give me a moment and I'll, I'll start over. No, of course, of course. Um, take, take your time. My heart rate just went way up. In the summer of 2020, Aisha was a professor at Kaiser Permanente Medical School in Pasadena, California. I am a child of immigrants. I, I was born in Canada, but I've grown up in the United States since I was eight years old, in, in Atlanta since I was eight years old. I've never been fired. <laughs> I've never, I've, uh, I've always considered myself a hard worker. That August, all the instructors, including Aisha, were asked to lead a discussion with their groups of eight to ten students about race and gender bias in medicine. As a Black American woman physician, I felt um, that this was a conversation that I could have at a different level. Um, than some of my other facilitators. 
because I know what it means to be a black woman in our healthcare system. I know what it means to be a black woman physician uh, in this healthcare system. And so I brought um, a lot of my personal experiences to the discussion. I've promised the students that what was discussed in the classroom would remain confidential. But I will say that it was a heartfelt class. It is not easy to discuss race. It can make people uncomfortable on all sides. I will say the experience as an attending physician being hired to teach a class that is diverse, but to also speak about race puts me in a very different position. But I will say that at the end of the class, and I am a spiritual person, so I will use the term sacred. And I felt that the environment that was created in the class was sacred. After having such a meaningful discussion with her students, Aisha was shocked by what happened next. You know, Chadwick Boseman, I just read that he died. I was actually out to dinner with some of my colleagues who congratulated me for the class that I had when I told them some of the discussion that was held. Um, But they were with me when I received, when I saw that I missed the phone call. And so I asked them to stay with me um, because for the Dean of Community Affairs to reach out to you um, after hours is unusual. She was told that someone had complained about something that had happened in class that day. And then she was immediately suspended. So as someone who uh, since fifth grade wanted to be a doctor and then as in 11th grade wanted to be a teacher, I found myself uh, unable to do the two things that I love. And um, that was an extraordinarily stressful time and continues to be as I'm suing the school. Eventually, she took to Twitter to write out her thoughts on the experience. She felt if she had stayed quiet, it would have allowed the institution to tell its side without her getting the chance to voice hers. At the time, I was really just trying to work through all that it meant to not um, consider myself an educator if I didn't have students and consider myself a physician if I didn't have patients. And uh, through that time, I was working through this process with my pastoral counselor. And the day that I ended up sending my very first thread with only 12 followers (laughs) was the day my pastoral counselor said to me, we don't understand the power of our own stories. And I think it's very easy, um, especially when you're in medicine, because I think there's a certain personality type of medicine that kind of, you know... um, keep your head down, do the work, grind, that we don't necessarily appreciate our own experiences. And so I wrote the thread really just also so I wouldn't feel complicit in my own trauma. Soon, her tweets went viral. She received an outpouring of support, and other folks shared their own concerns and experiences. I naively didn't expect that what happened to me was something that was happening to other people. I came across a a conversation on Twitter and what struck me was a response that says, we believe her because we know it's true. And then what was heartbreaking were the stories from young people, 
either pre-medicine in high school, elementary school, through their parents, <laughs> who were saying, this is what scares me about going into medicine. I don't want this to happen to me. I have this dream, but I see what happened to you. And so part of the reason that I continue to, to stay public is because there has to be a change. You know, I just had a patient um, and, and I told her, I said, next time you, you come, like, bring your daughter. Her daughter wants to be a surgeon. Her daughter's in eighth grade. And in fourth grade, she has a career day and a surgeon came and spoke. And now she wants to be a surgeon. For me, I decided in fifth grade. So I know it can be done. I don't want her to feel that just because of an experience of someone losing her job, she can't pursue her dream. Tell me about the changes that you feel need to be to be made. And who do you feel needs to be at the forefront of those changes? I think the people responsible for those changes, first and foremost, are the, are the people who are responsible for medical education and residency education. And that's the LCME and the ACGME. If you go to their website, there is anti-racist language. There is language that suggests they understand the importance of diversity. They very clearly share what it means to become a physician and what values a physician should have. But I find those institutions fairly lacking when it comes to demonstrable action that protects residents. And Dr. Corey, uh, you know, what I hear a lot of in, in, in this space, and, and you, you yourself brought it up, is, you know, you want action as opposed to, as people have said to me, you know, lip service or, or something that kind of, you know, DEI, anti-racism theater, as, as some institutions, you know, do do. No, I was reading a, a Forbes article that had written about your experience, and they did get a statement from from uh, Kaiser. And I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what kind of Kaiser has said. Um, if you don't mind, I'll kind of read what they, they had said, which is, um, you know, Dr. Corey was not placed on leave for bringing content related to anti-racism to the classroom or for sharing her experiences as a black woman in medicine. Our faculty have been and will continue to be encouraged to relate these issues to classroom topics. And this has happened repeatedly since classes started in July 2020. Our school remains committed to being a leader in anti-racism and being on the forefront of issues related to equity, inclusion, and diversity among medical schools. What's your thought on that being their, their, their response to everything that has happened to you? And, you know... You said something to me earlier. Someone said, you know, I believe it because I know it's true. What's your response to what they said, their statement? I think the words can be very inspiring. The reason that I moved across the country from everything that I know is because I believed in the values that the institution has listed on their website. Leadership has to be proven in action. As far as the reasons for my dismissal. I've shared that uh, letter on my Twitter account. Um, and I did so boldly because I know it's bogus. But I, I hope that they become a leader in anti-racism. I hope that there's a change of heart. Early on and still, I've encouraged um, institutions to engage in the restorative justice process when there's an issue. And that's a process that even ACGME um, has put forth as a way of managing issues, especially racism, um, gendered microaggressions in the workplace. 
And in part, because it's a process that will allow for wholeness. It's not a process that's punitive. It's a process that requires accountability and transparency. I think that's where real anti-racism leadership is going to end up being. It's not just going to be um, because it was said. It's ultimately going to be because of the actions that are taken. Aisha filed a civil rights lawsuit against the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. It's been a long battle that was recently made longer when the judge granted the school a continuance, pushing the court date back another year. Since 2020, Aisha has moved from California back to Atlanta, Georgia, where she's finding her rhythm again. Yeah, so I've actually returned to my alma mater, Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, I have a clinical practice and I am happy um, to be part of faculty that's educating students. Uh, we just had a wonderful match match day. We're still celebrating. Um and this has been a returning home for me all the way around. I've returned to my home city. I've returned to the home institution that has nurtured me. Um, and it's, it's just lovely to kind of have landed here after the experience that I had. Happy homecoming. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Some people actually sent me those messages. Welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. This push towards anti-racism in medicine and medical education, it's fraught with hurdles. It's hard to change institutions in America, especially when issues of race and racism are at their core. Yet despite these obstacles, whether they be the hateful words spewed from the mouths of neo-Nazis or thorny backlash from the academic institutions themselves, what we're seeing this activism led by students and educators and healthcare professionals, it's planting the seeds that could one day blossom into an anti-racist future in medicine. You know, one where everyone gets the care and respect that they deserve. Now, that's not to say that anti-racism in medicine alone will bring us to health equity. There are several other structural changes that need to be made in our healthcare system before we reach that point. But ultimately, efforts like these, they're a step towards achieving that goal of health equity. Thanks again to Nick St. Fleur and the rest of the team at STAT for letting us run this episode today. Subscribe to the podcast Color Code wherever you get your podcasts. There's additional info and links for this podcast on our website. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. The goal of the Affordable Care Act is right in the name. Increase access to affordable health care. But one provision of the law has left about 5 million people locked out of that promise. It just made no sense. Like, it was completely mind-boggling. Now, the Biden administration is trying to address that. Fixing the family glitch, to me, is 
the most significant thing that the Biden administration could do on its own to extend affordable coverage to families. The toll of the family glitch and a possible fix. Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks to everyone at STAT who produced this week's episode, Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, Nicholas St. Fleur, Kevin Seaman, Tino Delamercid, and Brian Joel. Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Andrea Perdomo, executive director Jessica Silverman, senior health policy editor Sarah Thomas, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Deb Hayes, Sharath Banur, and Anne Harrington. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the SCAN Foundation, the Better Care Playbook, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, the Sozose Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.